This is an ABC podcast. Benjamin Law, I'm back from the underground parking garage that you sent me to. You said I was going to be training the next generation of mutant radio hosts, but I just spent the week helping them make lip-syncing videos for social media. Why, why did you make me leave my family for that? Uh, um, enrichment, dear Beverly, enrichment. Hey, we're living in a globally connected world and we need to keep on top of all aspects of internet culture. I mean, be grateful. What have you got to report back? Whoa. All right. Steady on, mate. Fair sucks with the sauce bottle. It was just a question. Fair dinkum. What a reaction. Are you, are you speaking in a fake Australian accent? Are you taking the piss now? How dare you defile my beautiful native tongue? Mate, don't have a dummy spit. You're carrying on like a pork chop. We've got a show to do. Let's just simmer down now, settle kettle, and stop everything. On RN in your podcast feed, it's time to stop everything. Hello, I'm Beverly Wang. Hi, I'm Lauren Rosewarn. G'day, I'm Benjamin Law. We're talking to the creator of Bluey very soon. Bluey is the new animated show on ABC Kids Channel that's winning over Australian kids and parents. The show's been a huge hit since debuting at the beginning of October with more than 12.5 million views on ABC Kids iView during that time. So what's the secret to Bluey's success? We'll try to find out very soon. I am so looking forward to some Bluey talk. I'm calling it now. Bluey is better. Better than Peppa Pig. Whoa, Beverly Wang. Shots fired. Standing by it. But first, though, sorry, eh, not sorry, for injecting this earworm into your grey matter. Don't stop Sadly, because radio isn't a visual medium, you can't see Dr. Lauren Rosewan tearing the dance floor a new one oh, right now. How, how well you know my how well you know my music taste, Ben. <laughs> now, listen. The reason why we're playing Kesha's TikTok is because it is the soundtrack to my first video on the social video app TikTok, also featuring the amazing desk dancing styles of our very own producer Alice Walker. You're in for a treat if you know how to search it. So you might have heard of Snapchat, Instagram Stories, and Vine, Twitter's defunct short video app. But have you heard about TikTok? It's a short video app, a social media app that's been around since about 2016 and has really taken off recently. I read a CNN report that said TikTok has been downloaded more than Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram and YouTube in the last month. Now, don't freak out. Unlike Snapchat, which seemed to take me years to understand, uh, TikTok's concept is quite simple. It's a lip sync video app. You can post short videos of 15 seconds at a time and there's all sorts of filters, edit functions, special effects to play with. You can download the app like I did and you can watch superhero stories. You can watch people doing hilarious lip syncs in their workplaces or you can search TikTok videos on YouTube where there are many compilation videos. Lauren, what else sets TikTok apart? I think there's this tendency that, particularly in Australia, that we think (coughs) of pop culture as something that the West exports. And I think this is a good example of something that's hugely popular in China that is now coming back at us and that we're we're embracing and using it, perhaps not as, as was originally envisaged, but certainly 
making it our own. Uh, Globalisation is a beautiful thing. Now, right when you think you've got a handle on social media is right when you've got to get your head around yet another phenomenon or platform. Ariel Bogle is the ABC's technology reporter and she, thankfully, is here to help. Hi, Ariel. Welcome back to Stop Everything. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Ariel, you've done some reporting on TikTok. Why this social media app? Why should we be paying attention to it in particular? I think it is just a really interesting next step in video content. As you mentioned at the start, Vine, of course, was that six-second video product that really um, was a a birthing ground, I guess. It really uh, birthed a whole generation of stars that went on to become really famous on YouTube. Lele Pons is one. She's really big in the United States and there are plenty of others. And TikTok is another platform that sort of puts professional video editing tools in the hands of just about anyone. So it really is a free-for-all. Anyone can build a following. It gives that impression that anyone can have their 15 minutes, Mm. 15 seconds of fame in this case. So, Ariel, you mentioned Vine, which was a Twitter offshoot where users could share six-second-long looping video clips, which did take off initially before eventually sinking. So what sets TikTok apart from Vine? Like, how is it working when Vine didn't? Well, there are a lot of theories about why Vine eventually went defunct. But one reason was that although it was creating sort of semi-professional Vine makers, it wasn't really giving them many opportunities to monetize their content. And TikTok is addressing that to an extent from the start. So one feature of TikTok is that you can live stream. And while you're live streaming, people can send messages, of course, but they can also spend money on the app so they can buy emoji to send to their favorite stars. And if you are a star with enough followers and getting plenty of this emoji, you can actually convert it back to dollars. So this was a feature that was also in a previous version of this app, which was called Musical.ly. And last year, ByteDance, a Chinese company, bought Musical.ly and has now renamed it to TikTok. And at that point, uh, when Musical.ly was still operating in its previous form, I think there were some stars that were making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month. So it is giving people an opportunity to make money off their popularity on these apps. Wow. So you can actually make a living being a a short video star. Are are stars who were popular on Vine and Musical.ly migrating to TikTok? To an extent, I think that generation, the Lele Pons generation, are now really big on YouTube. And of course, YouTube lets you monetize by running ads against your products. So they feel like they're already well established. To me, TikTok still feels a little bit of a free-for-all. It feels like all types of people are making content. Mm. It also feels extremely young. Mm. So when I spoke to a couple of these biggest stars on TikTok, they told me that they're very aware their viewers are you know, even 10 years old. I spoke to one girl in Melbourne who was 10, who it's one of her most popular favourite apps to use every day. And, uh, you know, technically that actually breaks the app's terms of service. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be used by people 13 and up. Mm. But I think you can see in the content um, and in the comments that these people do seem on the younger side. So who are some Australians who have become famous using this app? Well, it's an interesting uh, chicken or egg theory. You know, um, I spoke to these two girls in Perth. They're called the Ribka Twins. They're really amazing gymnasts and dancers. So a lot of their content is or- always around, you know, the latest tricks and choreography. Because of course, TikTok is all is often really much based around these fifteen second grabs of popular top forty hits. So they do routines to those hits. And they were already sort of semi-famous. They had been on Australia's Got Talent a few years ago and they were building a YouTube following. 
but now they're also extremely big on TikTok. So they're very strategic, I suppose, about what they what type of content they make for all their different platforms. They're really fully fledged online stars. And I also spoke to another woman, um, Katya Gleason who is based over in LA but's originally from Melbourne. And she, rather than making uh, music lip-syncing clips, often makes comedy skits. And uh, she told me she's one of these people that's very aware that her audience is very young. So actually a lot of her skits are based around uh, sort of characters that might speak to young people. She dresses up as a princess and gets into sort of funny hijinks, this type of content. So just talk, just exploring that aspect of the younger viewership and the younger usership on TikTok, why do you think there are younger people being drawn to this app in particular? And are there any concerns around that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when I look at the app, there are darker corners you can find in the app like any social media platform. But at first glance, it's got a pretty upbeat style. It's colourful. It's got that pop music backing track. It's quite easy to use and make. If you see a video you like from one of your favourite stars, it's actually quite easy to emulate them and make a video pretty similar yourself. So I can see why that might appeal to younger people. But actually, uh, when Musical.ly was getting popular a few years ago, I actually wrote a story at that point about some of the security concerns with that Mm. app. At that point, you were able to search vaguely by location and you were able to really quickly find kids in school uniforms across Australia making skits and music videos in the school, you know, in the playground. And for obvious reasons, that brings up concerns. With TikTok, though, I think they are a little more aware of that issue. You're not able to search by location in that way. But nevertheless... There are subcultures on the app that people might stumble across when maybe they're not ready for it. There are a few. There's a definitely a big furry community. This is the, the community where people dress up in um, animal costumes, yeah. I suppose. And you know, it's a fun subculture, but uh, in parents might have some concerns. Mm. On stop everything, ABC technology reporter Ariel Bogle is t- t- giving us a tour, really, of the short video app TikTok. Now, TikTok came to be after a Chinese digital content company called ByteDance took over an American app called Musical.ly. And there are a lot of TikTok users playing around with memes, right, Ariel? One example that you shared in your ABC article is a compilation of different users uh, doing their version of the Karma's a Bitch meme. That's what this sort of sounds like. Karma's a bitch. Karma's a bitch. So it goes on like that for about a minute. It's a visual thing, but basically what it looks like is a before and after reveal where people are mouthing the words karma's a bitch, and then they whip up a piece of fabric to reveal their beautiful after version of themselves. So the funny thing is, right, this line is actually from the American show Riverdale, but it's considered a Chinese meme because it's popularized by Chinese teens. Is that right, Ariel? Have I got that sort of right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> this meme really took off last year. So just to give some background here, there the Chinese version of TikTok is called Douyin, and it's obviously incredible, incredibly popular. You know, I've seen stats around 350 million users in China alone. And uh, this app, this meme, it, you're right, it is from Riverdale, but they really popularized it, and there's just amazing and like endless compilations of people doing these transformations from scraggly, I guess, into a beautiful, glamorous woman or man Mm. um, in their bedroom. But it really got exported. I remember seeing a BuzzFeed lists about it towards the end of last year. And you can still find uh, all types of people from all over the world doing this meme um, on the app today. 
And I thought it was interesting too because this meme, although it's from an American TV show, I found versions of it done by people from India. There's actually a really big Indian contingent on, t- on TikTok with people doing lip syncing routines to Bollywood tracks. Oh, cool. But they were also doing this Karma's a bitch uh, meme. So it's just obviously one that's really easily translatable and pretty fun. So the Chinese internet market is really considered to be quite restrictive and highly regulated. I'm wondering, does the live streaming aspects of TikTok really help overcome some of the platform restrictions that exist there? Is that part of the appeal? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think the world of live streaming in China is quite complicated. So over the years, Obviously, live streaming has become extremely popular there and they've minted their own social media stars mm-hmm. from some of these apps. But it's really hard to give a, a complete history of live streaming because apps have come and gone in quite quick succession. And the Chinese government in last year actually did quite a big crackdown on live streaming apps. They were saying that a lot of the content being displayed was not morally... Um, you know, above board, there were also concerns about the commenting style. So Chinese app live streaming apps really popularized this thing called Danmu, which is bullet screen comments. So in the apps of while people are live streaming, comments kind of fire across the string of the across the screen like bullets. And it was an opportunity for people to talk about all different types of things because it's hard for the sensors mm. that are in place in China to get a hold of them when the commenting is happening that fast. So uh, TikTok is still uh, it does have this live streaming component, but I wonder um, how I am actually would love to know a bit more about how they're keeping a tight wraps on it, because if they don't, they could very easily fall afoul of Chinese censors. And mm. as we've seen in the past. Oh, yeah. So, Ooh, so hello. Ariel, you know, as out of necessity, almost Chinese social media apps have had to grow parallel to their Western counterparts. You can't really access, say, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook on China very easily at all. And now we've got this example of TikTok migrating out to a Western audience. Have we seen examples of that before, especially from the Chinese market migrating over? And now because of TikTok, are we going to see more of that? I think we'll definitely see more of that. You're right, as you point out, in the past we've got YouTube and then a Chinese version of YouTube. Um, Same with a lot of different platforms like Twitter is quite like uh, Weibo, which Mm. is a sort of Chinese, um, yeah, like a microblogging site Mm -hmm. like Twitter. But what's interesting, especially about TikTok, is that Facebook, of course, announced a few weeks ago its own version of TikTok. It's called Lasso. So that's a really interesting trend. It's not not a new trend for Facebook to try and copy the successes (laughs) of others. They also copied Snapchat in Instagram stories. But perhaps it's one of the early examples of... Uh, Facebook, a Western Silicon Valley company copying, directly copying a function of a Chinese app. But I certainly don't think it will be the last time we see that because, as you mentioned, although China's internet is quite restrictive, it has it it has an immense amount of creativity within those bounds. Sometimes I think that some really interesting creativity happens within those quick, those really firm structures. And mm. so the live streaming thing, although of course in the West we have had live streaming as well, I think that intimate live streaming from smartphones and the features that people can add to those live streams, stickers, animation, you know, emojis and things like that are really popularised in China and now being exported into other markets. Ariel Bogle, this is such an interesting conversation. Thank you for taking us through a little bit of what TikTok is and what may come. Ariel Bogle is the ABC technology reporter. And no need to thank me, everyone, but this was my second choice song for a TikTok video. Do you remember this hit 
from 1990s R&B boy band Color Me Bad. Now, according to the Chinese Zodiac, we're currently in the year of the dog. I know this because I was born in the year of the dog. That's right. It's literally my year, people. You are not the only pup having an auspicious year, Benjamin Law. listening, don't panic. It is not 8am. The morning rush is over. Surely, I'm not the only one who can tell time by the ABC Kids TV schedule. That is the theme to Bluey. It's a new animated show on ABC Kids. It features Bluey. She is an energetic six-year-old blue healer, her four-year-old sister Bingo, mom Chili, and dad Bandit. And Ben, like you, Bluey is a Queenslander, Mm -hmm. and she is a bit of a homegrown success. The show only debuted on October 1st, but it has already become the number one Australian-produced kids program for the zero to four age group on the ABC Kids channel. The first 26 episodes have clocked over 12 and a half million program plays on ABC Kids iView. It's just incredibly cute. It's not preachy. It's, I mean, I'm a fan. You love it. it. You I love, do it. love and it. I love it yeah. too. The ABC recently announced new episodes of Bluey for 2019 at its network upfront. And as you say, Beverly Wang, I'm a proud Queenslander, so I love this detail. The whole show is made in Brisbane at Ludo Studios. Bluey's set in Brisbane too. Lots of familiar sites if you watch the show. City Cat, Catamarans on the River, Hilly Streets full of Queenslander houses. Even the bus stop signs are exactly the same colour scheme and design of the Brisbane ones. I love it. So fellow Queenslander and Brisbane-based animator Joe, uh, Joe Brum is Bluey's creator and writer. Joe, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you. Hey, Joe. So you worked in t- children's TV for a few years, including a stint in London where you were an animator on Charlie and Lola before moving back home to Australia. What was your inspiration for Bluey? Well, it was, it was, I love dogs and I just had two daughters and it was just, they sort of consumed most of my world really. So it kind of just had to come out somewhere and it, it came out in an animated series. It's been comparably, comparably, I think, very favorably compared to Peppa Pig. How do you take that? Yeah, yeah. Look, I love Peppa Pig. It's, that's, um, I always defer that compliment, to be honest. I, I think um, I sort of worked at that studio on their other show for a little while. And and the guys who make that, uh, you know, they they come from a short film background. I mean, he's... Um, They've had Academy Award nominations mm. and they really just, look, it's, you, you, I can't say enough good things about that show. It's just so, it's just so beautifully made. It's so beautifully coloured. It's so tight in its production. And for me, it was the show that was a big inspiration for this because they consciously looked at kids and, and said, look, a lot of these kids shows aren't trying to make the kids laugh, you know, and they, they looked at the role that the parents have 
in being the butt of the jokes to to actually make kids laugh. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's look, it, it's been it's a real compliment. Joe, you said you've got two daughters. I'm just wondering, was there something missing in the Australian kids' landscape that you felt you needed to fill with Bluey? Well, I mean, I suppose the Australian kids' landscape, it's not as full as, say, the UK kids' landscape, definitely mm. the American. So I think I think anything would have been welcome. You know, anything to add in is always nice to have here for... Um, for the kids. And no, look, what I did want to do was, was have a show that was genuinely co-viewing so that the parents could sit through it and not sort of go crazy. Uh, and that was a real, it was a real challenge because you're trying to, you're trying to have a a three-year-old watch it as the same time as a 35-year-old. So that, we always knew that was going to be a challenge, but I wanted to do it just so that you know, it could become a, a shared experience with the, the parents and the kids. Joe, the episodes of Bluey are relatively short. They're about seven minutes each. What do you want to get done in those seven minutes? What do you want to tick off in every episode? Well, from my sort of writing nerdery, it's I want to I want to complete the story structure, and that's what I I just spend a lot of time just making sure this thing, and not always successfully, but the best ones, you know, they they follow a good structure. They have a beginning, they have a middle, they have an end, and you're left. The main thing I want to leave is that you're left feeling positive about parenting, about, and you're left with, I guess feeling a little bit of the magic through the exhaustion mm. of being a parent. Mm. and But the main thing really is, and I know this sounds kind of, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to say it, but the main thing is I just want to, you, you, I'm trying to make kids laugh. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not a big believer in shows can really teach kids anything below the age of six. I don't think they're really in that academic, intellectual kind of phase of their development. Mm. It's really, I just, you know, I looked at what, how I make my kids laugh, and I just thought, well, I'll just put that in the show. This and is... it's, it's lots of hitting people in the head. <laughs> and dogs. <laughs> a lot of dogs. Yeah, a lot of dogs. And dogs, This yeah. is Stop Everything, and we're talking to the creator of Bluey, the Australian-made animated kids show about six-year-old blue healer Bluey, who lives in Brisbane with her family. It's been a huge hit for the ABC Kids channel. And, and Joe, Br- uh, Joe Brum is our guest. He's the creator. Let's hear a little bit from Bluey now. And this is an episode that I've watched more than once. It's called Wagon Ride. And Bandit the Dad, he's pulling the girls to the playground monkey bars very early in the morning in a wagon and he's just not moving fast enough for Bluey because he's t- stopping to talk to grown-ups he meets on the way. Hey Bluey! Hi. He keeps me up all night, Bandit. My word. Yes, Bluey? Can you please finish talking now so we can go to the monkey bars? Oh, you're heading to the monkey bars. I better let you get back to it. Have fun, Bluey. Thank you. Okay, let's go. Now that was much better, Bluey. You didn't interrupt, you let me know you wanted to talk and you waited till I was ready. Well done. Thanks. I still just need you to be more patient though, okay? Okay. I just find it hard to be patient. I'll give you a hint. Next time, just watch what your sister does. Okay. High five. Ooh, itchy neck. (laughs) Dad. Now, Joe, I know you don't like to think about children's TV in terms of lessons, but having watched Bluey quite a bit, I've really noticed the strong father-daughter relationships that are really central to the show. It's often Bandit and the two girls who are out or playing at home by themselves. 
And uh, to me, it strikes me as a very timely choice to model this kind of active parenting in fathers and show a really strong bond between fathers and daughters. Um, and it's also not based on very conventional gender roles. For example, we don't see a lot of pink. We don't see a lot of princesses. Did you have any discussions around what sorts of gender roles and relationships you wanted to develop in these characters for the series? Well, uh, the ABC, um, the ABC were a lot of help with that. No, I mean, I spent, I worked from home for the first sort of four years, I guess, of my kids' lives. So I was there a lot and would take them on wagon rides and uh, would, was just, I guess I was there a lot. So it was a very fortunate experience to really just see see them day in, day out. And so most of that is really, um, it's just, you know, little things like that. Look, that little scene is, that's me at my very best, my fleeting <laughs> best. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's really kind of just based on, I guess, my life and that of my family's life and my friends. And yeah, it's a different, you know, I guess I always, I always love talking with my dad because it was a different generation that they, um, you know, you know, I, I think dads these days, if I look around at my friends, they, um, they're sort of across everything these days. And so, I, yeah, I think that's kind of the normal now, isn't it? Joe, can you tell us a little bit about the design and the look of the show, specifically the fact that Bluey is a girl and is literally blue and not pink? I mean, was that a conscious choice? Because so much of what kids see is gendered along colour lines now. Uh, well, I think from memory, she start, I, I had a dog called Rusty. and he, Rusty was a Kelpie. And that was the start. That was the first little character I drew because I really loved that dog. And I wanted to make a show about Rusty, but it wasn't particularly colorful. And um, so then the idea of Blue Healers came in and, and look, they're blue and they're Australian. And, you know, well, not that Kelpie's still Australian, but they're just bright blue. It just worked for, um, you know, it works for kids TV and, and it, it had to be two daughters. I've got two daughters mm. and my, the producer, Charlie's got two daughters. So it was, um, yeah, it kind of came about down that route. There is actually a lot of, I mean, Bluey is great kids TV, but let's, let's face facts. There's a lot of bad kids TV out there, Joe. Um, and bad can cover anything from low quality animation to questionable, annoying, repetitive storylines and characters. I mean, having been immersed in this world, I'm just curious, what did you see around you that you really wanted to avoid with Bluey? Well, I suppose I wanted to, probably the main thing I wanted to avoid with Bluey was doing something that was, uh, wasn't sort of applicable to the developmental stages of, of a, you know, between three and six year olds. I, I noticed that, you know, it was a big experience. Like when we started Bluey, the first few episodes were kind of down the normal route of the family, you know, they go to the dentist or they go to here. And, but around the same time, uh, my eldest daughter started prep and it was suddenly, you know, about four or five, and it was suddenly all about academic and intellectual, um, you know, writing and reading and all that the gameplay fell to the side. And we had quite a hard time with that. And we ended up uh, in a school that was um, much more focused on play and just delayed that by a year. And so as a result of that, I really started reading about play and, you know, what it is that it's doing. And, and then that led on to these sort of these de developmental stages. And it kind of just seemed like, you know, the real intellectual stuff, learning to count and all that and abstract concepts, which you get in a lot of kids' shows, like we're going to learn about, 
I don't know, like we're going to learn about um, kindness. <laughs> well, but, if I you mean, do it in an intellectual yeah. way, if it's a little it's, lecture about kindness, yeah. it just mm. goes over kids' heads. It's modeled so it's, in the show, yeah. Yeah, mm. like it, it's so I really, it's not, it's not trying to teach kids anything this show because I don't think they get, they're not getting abstract concepts in that phase. They, they're just, they sort of, they're learning to be not little criminals. You know, they're learning, <laughs> using play to move out of that little toddler phase of just being a little reprobate, a, a beautiful, lovely little reprobate, but, and they're using play to start becoming civilized, I suppose you'd say. And that's, that's a fun time for parents and kids. It's like, like for a parent, it's like you're stuck in a Monty Python sketch. And for kids, it's like, you know, rather than an episode about going to the dentist, I wanted to have an episode about how a kid recreates going to the dentist in their game. Mm. It's much more interesting. Joe, a very quick question. Blue is a great showcase for Brisbane talent. You've got musician Dave McCormack uh, from the band Custard, voicing Bandit, actor M- Melanie Zanetti, voicing Chili. Who's doing the voices of Bluey and Bingo, those really adorable voices we hear of the kids? Oh, they're just child actors. Um the most of the the young cast are different child actors. Some are family, um, but we don't really we don't credit the child actors. Uh, but yeah, they're just come mainly from Brisbane. Um, and yeah, whoever whoever can sort of um, fill that character the best. We've got a message in from Twitter from Steve. He's saying that your TV show theme song is the least annoying theme song of all 500 cartoons on ABC Kids. <laughs> is that a compliment? <laughs> I think it's absolutely. A, it absolutely is a compliment. Parents watch kids' TV day in, day out, and if there's something that doesn't annoy them, I think that's definitely a win. Um, <laughs> well, jo- Ben, you will know Joff Bush. Joff Bush. Uh, is behind the music. And if I can encourage everyone to listen to this with headphones, both for the sound design, but we put a lot of music a lot of effort into the music and Joff Bush I think is if he's not a genius I don't know what is and it's yeah, you you would know him very well. Ben has Joff, been singing his praises all morning. Joff Bush composes <laughs> for shows like like uh, like Bluey, but also Family Law and Survivor on Channel Ten too. Oh wow, um, <laughs> good company there. Now, just very final question because I know that Bluey is in Australia now, but it's poised to take over the world. It's going to be distributed by the BBC. I mean, what do you think about all this talk about Bluey joining the ranks of Peppa and the Wiggles and all these like long term children's stalwarts? Do you do you see? I just I mean, wrap your head around that a little bit oh look you know it's it'll it'll do what it's do I think I'm to be honest this is our first major it was my first major thing I'm just focused on trying to get these first 52 done and just stay true to it I'm trying to block most of that out because whatever we've however we've done it this little bubble we're in it's kind of working Mm. so I'm just trying to whatever will happen will happen but um it'll be interesting whether it will translate as well outside of Australia. Mm-hmm. That's that's my main um, concern, I suppose, whether it will work in the US and the UK mm-hmm. and around the world. But, um, you know, look, it's – I did – you asked why we, I did this. It's The main reason was I wanted a studio experience again like I had in London here in Brisbane, and it's just been a magic year. It's it's a really a magic crew, and it's it's been a hard year but it's, it's been the best year of my life. Well, big congratulations. Bluey is an absolute hit. Joe Brum is an animator. He's the creator and the writer of the hit animated show, Bluey, which you can see on ABC Kids Channel and iView. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for the invitation.
Saturday lunchtime on RN is Science Time. The science show at noon brings you the latest ideas from the brightest minds. Then at one, Anne Jones explores the back of beyond or your own backyard with Off Track. Then it's time for the extraordinary Earshot, compelling documentaries from our very best storytellers. There's a great big tin shed, just like a monument in the middle of nowhere. Surprise yourself on Saturdays with RN and the ABC Listen app. Now, dating shows, Lauren Rose Warren. I know this is one of your favourite genres on TV, right? Basically, mm, your yeah. obsession. Yeah, I like them as much <laughs> as I like those pre-sporting uh, event panel shows. <laughs> Just on par. Which is a uh, lot. Yeah, yeah, which is heaps. Take that, footy show. Well, regardless of your feelings, Lauren Rose Warren, our world is proliferated with dating shows, a global phenomenon they are. We've got The Bachelor, Love Island... Married at first sight, dating naked, Adam looking for Eve, if you are the one. I could go on, but I have to breathe. (laughs) And though the settings and formats may vary, they pretty much serve up the same thing, right? Bachelors and bachelorettes, coupling up, splitting up, and then possibly coupling up again with someone else. Yeah, and another thing they have in common is almost exclusively they're heterosexual. There's been a few exceptions, Finding Prince Charming in 2006, hosted by Lance Bart. Lance Bass from Insane, but they've also not done particularly well. The 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 non heterosexual mm. ones. So yeah, yeah. Not last I mean, long. it's very fair to say that my fellow LGBTIQA plus people don't get much of a look in. However, there's a new dating show that's aiming to change that, and it has an Australian connection. It's hosted by internationally renowned Australian drag queen, Courtney Act, also known as Shane Jenick. Australians might remember Courtney from back in the day, season one of Australian <laughs> Idol, way back when. Yeah. Uh, since then, Courtney has gone on to find international fame with RuPaul's Drag Race, and earlier this year, she actually won Celebrity Big Brother in the UK. The new show she's hosting is called The Bi-Life. Shot in Barcelona, it features a cast of young bisexual men and women going on dates and shining some light on some of the misconceptions and stereotypes that bi people encounter. We caught up with Courtney in LA by phone. Hi. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for making time for us. My pleasure. Now, Courtney, there have been a lot of dating reality TV shows over the years. Some of them have featured or even focused on queer people, but never exclusively bisexual people. Why did you want to do a show focused on bisexual people specifically? Well, I mean, I think any time you get to tell a queer story in the mainstream is wonderful. And he came to me with this show and I was initially excited. Then I got scared because I thought, reality TV, dating shows, like, you know, sometimes they can be a bit trashy. And and when you're portraying a queer story or any minority story in the mainstream, I think you do have to be a little bit careful. And E sort of assured me that it was going to be a great show that really focused on accurate and positive representation of bi-plus people. And I was like, sign me up. Courtney, what are the challenges in adapting a model that has such a a well-established heterosexual storyline. What then happens when you make that bisexual? There's been lots of examples of failed attempts to do queer versions of straight material. How do you? How did you tackle this here? Yeah, look, I might be slightly biased, but I think we've done a really good job. I saw the first episode and all of my fears melted away. And the thing that I love about this is it's not a competition. Mm. Um, so... Sometimes the competition element or prize money maybe will encourage people to behave badly or to do things that they wouldn't normally do. And, you know, if you see people on Love Island behaving badly, you don't think, 
all straight people behave like that. You just think that straight person does. And so I think it was important that on this show, it was just a group of like-minded people all living together in a villa and they're going on dates with people outside the villa. And there's something heartwarming. Like, it's still got tears and emotions and everything, but there's also this really supportive element of having this group of Bycross people all living together and supporting each other. So they're not in competition. So there's nothing sort of catty or bitchy or anything like that. It's more just about them cheering each other on and this adventure's find love. Yeah, Courtney, I wanted to ask you about that because in the bi-life, the cast of housemates, male and female, they go on dates with either men or women and their housemates get to observe them by video. Why was it important to structure the show so that the housemates actually looked externally for dates rather than coupling up amongst themselves? We really wanted them to explore people outside the house because as well, you get to hear the different stories. So even in the first episode, right, Daisy, one of the girls, goes on a date with an Aussie guy called Adam. And Adam's like, oh, well, it's sexual. Yeah, all right. Yeah, if you want to bring other women back into the bedroom, that's all right by me. And she's like, yeah, no, that's not what I'm talking about. So how does that actually work? I don't know. I never really understood that. Like, So you like both, but does it mean if you're with a girl, do you still want to dabble with some boys? No, no. Okay. It's exactly the same as... Same as... If you're with a guy... It... <laughs> <laughs> Well, unless you're that way as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swingers. You are? No, well, I mean, okay. I'm open. I'm open for whatever, really, but, yeah. Even if it's a man? No, definitely not. Okay. Definitely not. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just open to, like, if, you, if, if a girl's interested in bringing other girls and all sort of things, okay. you know what I mean? Would, oh, would, yeah, would, right. That wouldn't be a problem. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm quite selfish. Okay. If I'm seeing someone, yeah. that's it. All right. And so... Whilst you've got that supportive environment in your house, you still get all of those traditional tropes and, and ignorances and misunderstandings that come from gay people and straight people being brought up and discussed and, and addressed. So I think it's cool that you you get also like it keeps it spicy, doesn't it? Because new people every week to go on dates with. On Stop Everything, we're talking to Courtney Act, who's the host of a new bisexual dating show called The Bi Life. When the housemates go out on blind dates, one of the key moments is when they have to come out as bisexual to their date. That happens quite a few times, even in the first episode. One thing I find tricky about going on dates and telling people that I'm bisexual is how they're going to react. There was an experience I had that wasn't the best. I was speaking to a girl and I just dropped it in the conversation. I said to her, look, basically, I've I like guys and girls. And she looked at me and she spat a drink out. That experience kind of did put me off being myself and telling girls. I date men and women. Okay. So it was one of those things where, you know, I didn't know what the sex of the person I'd be dating would be. Was your last relationship with a guy then or a girl? Is it a guy? It's a really interesting moment to have to navigate and I think really eye-opening to people who aren't bisexual. Is that a really common predicament in real life? Yeah, it's interesting talking to the guys because, like, Ryan, one of the villa mates, he was telling me that one of his struggles is, well, he described himself as being romantically attracted to men but only sexually attracted to women. And I just was like, okay, cool. Took that as face value. And then when we Mm. talked about it a little bit more, the reality of that was is that he couldn't have romantic relationships with women because when he came out as bisexual, the relationship would end because women struggled with the idea that he could be attracted mm. to men as well. So that was a really big issue for him coming out to women as bisexual. So he sort of, I think, just tended not to. He tended to have 
more sort of sexual relationships. And, you know, the same, the girls, like I gave with that example of Daisy, the way that quite often straight men can sexualize and fetishize bisexual women and think that that means that they're going to, you know, get to have sex with two women at once. Um, there's a lot of different reasons and different traits and stereotypes, and I think it can be a struggle for a lot of black people. And there's just no visibility, because you don't get to hear these stories being told. Courtney Act, also known as Shane Jenick, on the phone from Los Angeles. Courtney is a drag queen and host of The Bi-Life. You can watch it on E! You can also watch some videos of her on her YouTube channel. As you heard, she loves to play the role of educator. Just search for Courtney Act. And thanks for sticking with that phone line. This is Stop Everything. Lauren, I want you to listen closely to this. That's a bloody outrage, it is! I want to take this all the way to the Prime Minister. Hey, Mr. Prime Minister! Andy! Hi, mate. What's the good word? Lauren, is there anything about that clip that makes you want to cry? Mm, cringe maybe, but no, not cry. I save my tears for things that matter, Ben. <laughs> okay, so that infamous episode of The Simpsons from the 90s is clearly an over-the-top caricature. Is it? Is it clearly? Mm, not meant to uh, represent okay. Australia. Not in its totality anyway, <laughs> Beverly Wang, I hope. But it's definitely not the only example of extremely cringeworthy American attempts at Australian accents. Yeah, so 2007 had Rough Night, which had Kate McKinnon, for reasons that were never explained in the movie, being Australian, doing a terrible Australian accent. Another example that uh, still lives on in, in, in my nightmares, in Pitch Perfect 3, uh, John Lithgow played uh, Rebel Wilson's father, also did a really, really bad Australian accent. Cringeworthy. Y- you know what's funny, guys? That Simpsons audio sounded okay to me. Well, you know, the most uh, (laughs) chilling thing about hearing that Beverly Wang is that I know you, my dear Taiwanese Canadian, now based in Australia, friend, mightn't actually be joking. Um, Now, this is something that comes up a lot any time, really, in American plays in Australian. You think uh, Meryl Streep as Lindy Chamberlain. The Dingo's Got My Baby. Exactly, which I actually controversially don't think is that bad of an Australian accent. Mm. Um, There's James Coburn, his very confusing accent. In the Great Escape in the 1960s, and there seems to be a consensus out there that the Australian accent is difficult for non-Australians to imitate. I mean, do you concur, Beverly Wang? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, there are some times in the office where someone's trying to tell me the difference between two discrete vowel sounds, uh-huh. which they think is really important, and, and I just think, oh, doesn't that just sound like a small variation? I don't. Can you tell the difference between Australian and Kiwi accent? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You yeah. Can- yeah, yeah. I can get that. Okay. I mean, I think possibly a couple of reasons that I'm just going to wildly speculate about is that, first of all, the Australian accent is really, really hard to do. So mm-hmm. possibly it is just too hard. So congratulations, guys. You've got a really hard accent to copy. And then <laughs> yeah, I think... Great. <laughs> I feel so validated. <laughs> um, and then I think it's that thing uh, of just not really being able to hear the distinction, let alone mm. replicate it. Now, this whole can of worms has been opened again with the third season of Netflix comedy The Good Place, which came out a couple of months back. The series follows a group of people and demons and their exploits in The Good Place, which is heaven, and The Bad Place, which is hell. And the third season, for reasons I won't go into, is set in Sydney. Only it doesn't sound like the Sydney we know. Here's our first encounter with Simone, a neuroscientist, when the cripplingly indecisive Chitty asks for help. 
Look, I know I just kind of nope, walked in here and you don't know me at all, but is there any way to tell if my indecision is due to uh, a, a brain thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, what we do is we make a lengthy incision from your eyebrows to the nape of your neck and we peel your face back, right, then slice your skull open and then I just randomly stab at your brain with an electrified needle. The fun part is you're awake the whole time. Uh... I'm kidding! <laughs> I'll just give you an MRI and look at the part of your brain that controls decision-making. Oh, I, I want that. I'd also like to point out that episode <laughs> is called Everything is Bonza. Simone is played by British actor Kirby Howell Baptiste. American actor Ted Danson's accent is even more awful, although the show does poke fun at that. But the bad Australian accents have even spawned a fan theory here down under that it's a deliberate plot point to suggest an upcoming twist, that the characters are not actually in Australia at all. Um, Now, Julia Baird, who hosts ABC TV's The Drum, recently wrote a New York Times column about how the fact that even though Americans and the British love to mock how Australians talk... They can't imitate it. So take that, you flaming galahs. <laughs> um, so bad accents, they don't really bother you too much, Lauren? They don't bother me because I didn't think that woman sounded that bad in the sense that I've heard Australians who sound like that. Mm. What is this singular Australian voice yeah. that we're trying? You know, Ben and I don't sound the same. Don't we, Lauren? No, we don't. <laughs> and maybe it's I've spent a, l- a lot less time in Queensland than you have. But equally, every time I'm overseas, I have to explain where I'm from. To um, to Americans particularly, Australians, unless they have that very broad uh, Steve Irwin voice, they don't sound Australians. We all sound mm. uh, yeah. we all sound English to them. And I think this idea, I, I don't know why it worries it, Australians so much. There's hooked, 23 million of us. Is it cultural us. cringe, dare we say it, a little mm. bit? I'm not sure. I think that there are Maybe more we're just things very, to cringe we're about. We're very protective. Very, yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, when people even acknowledge our existence, yeah. we're so pleased. Yeah. But yeah. if you can't get it right, we've got one on top of you. And I think that's what it is. It's a representation issue. Because Australians don't see themselves that often presented in Hollywood, we're putting a lot on the line when we see it, that we're wanting to invest and want them to do us justice, whatever that means. I totally get that when you see yourself, you know, and you hear Australia maybe minutely mentioned in Hollywood, there's a lot of excitement around that. I mean, I totally relate to that. I just wonder whether we are not taking into account the low care factor that some <laughs> actors may have in actually getting it right. Like, does it occur to you guys that they just, the actors maybe don't care, especially in a comedy, that they might actually be having a lot of fun doing terrible Australian accents? That's very, very true. <laughs> and the other thing is also about resources as well. I mean, seriously, like... A proper acc- voice coach. Accent yeah. coaching costs a lot. And I have to agree with you, Lauren, when I heard the British actor on The Good Place just then do the Australian accent... I've heard much, much worse. So if people have a problem with that, I think you can find far worse examples. Look at Jude Law in the Steven Soderbergh film Contagion. Listen to my opener of this show. (laughs) But I think the accent actually has to sound bad and caricatured for people to pick it as Australian as well. If they sounded like most of us do, then I don't think audiences would necessarily recognise it as Australian. Yeah, I think we're overestimating the amount of nuance that... If you've got any kind of accent examples from TV or film that you think are particularly hilariously botched you can send messages to the hub at abc.net.au australian actors i know tend to agree it's easier for australian actors to do american and british accents because we kind of grew up listening Listening to to them and to an extent it's easier for british people to impersonate australian accents because they also grew up with us through neighbors and home and away 
So it makes sense that all four North American queer eyes really can't impersonate Aussie accents for peanuts. <laughs> but Tan France, who's British, I reckon completely nails it. Hey, Tan. Yeah? Tan, yeah. Oh, Could you do your Australian is. accent for us, yeah? Leave me alone. Rack off, just leave me alone. Can we get the dossier, please? Yes, clearly do, confusing British and Australian I do there. like rack off. I really feel that you don't hear rack off enough. <laughs> Often enough. All right. Okay, so bad accents. They terribly annoy Ben. Don't terribly annoy Lauren that much. And I can't even tell the difference. So that's that. Um, let's move on now, though, to something making really big news this week. This is the new memoir from former U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama. Her new book, Becoming, has become an instant bestseller, a pop culture phenomenon in its own right. The memoir has sold more than 725,000 copies in the first day. In someone, one day. In one day. Someone worked that out. That means nine copies were sold every second on the first day. Crazy, right? That is insane. Uh, and more than 1.4 million copies in the first week. Now, Michelle Obama is currently on a tour across the US and Europe. She's speaking in huge stadiums and theaters with people like Oprah Winfrey, Valerie Jarrett, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Tracy Ellis Ross work as her compares at these events. Now, imagine that. Thousands and thousands of people attending a book launch event. Really extraordinary. People have been waiting for this, this book to come out. Now, I have listened to the audiobook, and here's a snippet from the preface. In those days, I wore pigtails and bossed my older brother around and managed always and no matter what to get A's at school. I was ambitious, though I didn't know exactly what I was shooting for. Now I think it's one of the most useless questions an adult can ask a child. What do you want to be when you grow up? As if growing up is finite, as if at some point you become something and that's the end. So far in my life, I've been a lawyer, I've been a vice president at a hospital and the director of a nonprofit that helps young people build meaningful careers. I've been a working-class black student at a fancy, mostly white college. I've been the only woman, the only African-American in all sorts of rooms. I've been a bride, a stressed-out new mother, a daughter torn up by grief. And until recently, I was the first lady of the United States of America. It's been a really um, interesting experience listening to the book being mm. read in Michelle Obama's voice. It's very intimate. She's a good reader as well. And uh, you can't help. Uh, I, I'm rewinding bits and listening back, especially, you know, special moments with Barack Obama. I'm not going to lie. I'm, it makes I, sense, I'm doesn't it? it? Because she's yeah. a, such a great orator on stage. Yeah. So to translate that into audiobook mm -hmm. must be an incredible experience. And she goes into a lot of detail and you really get the idea of her as a full person and also the extent to which she really really had to bite her tongue when she was in the White House. First of all, the amount of racism that she encountered growing up, she clearly would have been familiar with encountering racism and expecting it in the White House and some of the terrible things that were said about her mm. um, during that time. And yet she was so restrained. And now she just really, it's a very methodical book, but I don't want to say that in a, in a way that it's boring. It's just like gives you a lot of detail, a lot of clarity. Um, and it's it's really it's really I would recommend it. Yeah. Why do we think it's taken off so big? I mean, obviously, I think in the Trump mm. era, people are looking for an antidote to the mm -hmm. toxic politics that have been plaguing the US over the last couple of years. But when you talk about the sales figures, the ones that you just mentioned, yeah. you know, 
X amount of copies per second. I mean, it's not quite Harry Potter and the Deathly yeah. Hallows level because that's another stratospheric kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. But it is kind of the adult version of that. In terms of publishing, this is like event Publishing. Lauren, publishing. Lauren, what yeah. are your theories? Yeah, it's next on my audiobook lineup. I've just finished reading um, Omarosa Manigold Newman's book. Now, she was <laughs> Trump's. She'd come up through his reality TV shows with him for 15 years Mm. from The Apprentice and then got the top, um, became the top African-American in his staff. And she only worked there for a year before she got fired in a quite ostentatious kind of Mm. a way, including press reports of her being dragged out of the White House in basically handcuffs. She reads the book too, which is my preference for an audio book mm. if it's an entertainer. Only Amorosa does Trump impressions throughout. Oh, oh, and wow. they're not supposed to be funny, but she's no talented. They are um, anyway. So maybe yes. don't, don't listen to that on your lulling your way to sleep. It's ahead. definitely not a book that's going to lull you into slumber. Okay, so those are two, uh, I guess, compare and contrast books. Now, before we go, when I was away training the Radio Mutant hosts <laughs> on my underground lair, Ben and Lauren, you spoke to uh, Rewired and that startup show host Ray Johnston about the huge video game hit Red Dead Redemption 2 and a disturbing trend among some users to upload videos of their character violently attacking suffragettes. That conversation prompted many people to get in touch, including Amanda, who didn't think we should talk about violent games. We also heard from Kath in Canberra, a 47-year-old mum. Son is 14, her daughter's 11, and her kids introduced her to gaming, and she told us how she got started. I started with the first-person shooter version of Plants vs. Zombies. It was really colourful and I really enjoyed the colour and the artwork actually and a good form of mental health therapy. I don't talk about gaming like it's bad or uh, wrong. We all enjoy it but I ask a lot of questions of, of my son particularly where I'll ask him if you, you know, can you play as a female. Um, I'm also not really into the terribly violent games so there's kind of a blood rule <laughs> in our family but we definitely go through a bit of a checklist with each game and he knows I'm not very happy when it doesn't have uh, enough options to play as a female. That's Kath from Canberra there and her advice, if you're worried about your kids gaming, game with them so you can share with them and uncover any issues and you might even enjoy it. On a more sobering note, Kath says she no longer uses a mic when gaming because she was getting too much abuse as a woman, uh, especially as an older woman, which is a really interesting and awful thing. Uh, Gillian from Dover in Tasmania also believes promoting diversity in gaming is important. Here she is. If you're a modern woman, the fact that there are no significant female figures in a game is a good reason not to play or promote it. The only way the industry is going to change is if you do not support games that do not promote equality. It's important to me as a woman, but more so as a mother of sons. Thanks, Gillian and Kath, for sending us voice memos. Our email is thehub at abc.net.au if you want to send us one too. Ben Law, Lauren Rose Warren, see you next week. Always see you next pleasure. week. Thanks to the team. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.